0: Yeah, yeah, old school, that's what I'm talking about Listen, this ain't for everybody but Some of y'all need to hear this. I know you in the trenches fighting But check it out I'm gonna put it down like this so I can help you saints understand Everything you're going through, is all part of the master plan Or what, you thought cause you got saved everything was gonna be peaches and cream You better wake up, son, don't nothing come to a sleeper, but a Say Table without words is dead, read your Bible, you know what it says don't work, don't eat Blackers don't get fed huh? Yeah, Jesus said He who puts his hands to the plow Looks back the same make fit Some of y'all ain't been in the pictures Five minutes and you about ready to quit I ain't mad at ya, I'm just hitting you with the real huh? If you died for me, I was still tripping Now how you think that make you feel Check this out Deep game This is deep huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing But your started trying to reach huh? But after him who's able to possess your father By his glory Struggle might be part of your testimony But it ain't the end of the story Now upon his was prophesied Way back in the day Quiet, sing your look right here And see if the church can like. to You you say why you, but your shirt sure shake, what would Jesus do? Why you asking if he ain't trying to do what he's saying? Huh? He told you he was gonna have tribulations, but you thought he was playing, huh? One minute you tell her how good God is, and can nobody beat to talk. The next minute you fight so fast, it's like you're moonwalking. Huh? Oh yeah, I have it to myself, cause I ain't no better. It ain't like I've been following his every word, obeying it to the letter. But so we soldiers, we gotta remember that. Regroup, stay on point. Hey, yeah, bow down, confess, repent, stay humble, let him anoint. Huh? It ain't easy as I thought it was, I've been lying if I told you that. But it sure I'm getting better all the time, trust me, that's the
1: fact. Ain't nothing we going through that can't be hammered, got put that on this tongue. Like they say, you can shout now if you want to,
0: cause the battle's already won. So while you're going through the battle, don't even show. You. you're gonna be on top. Quiet in the hook, line no more games, just tell you don't stop. I know we can make
1: it, we can make it. I good well,
2: I can work it out, I it Yeah everyone, welcome to the show. It's your host Lamont Patterson, this is Can I Play a Play? I just thought I'd give a minute to big boy upstairs, you know, it's my hope and my wish that your beliefs, that with his help, boy, we're going to be able to make it, boy, this thing that we call life, because it's a whole bunch of crazy-ish going on out there right about now, so I know we're going to make it, and anyway, I'd like to say welcome to the show again, we have a great dynamite show uh, lined up for you, um. As usual, we try to bring uh, guests to the show that can enlighten you, help you, some type of positive way. So, moving forward with this again thing that we call life, because a lot of things could be changed and made better. Uh, our guest today, Mr. Tom Bowman, is an advisor, speaker, change maker that uh, believes you know solutions are within our grasp. And we're going to be speaking on what is solving the climate crisis it's simple. So yes, we definitely going to uh, delve into that one, boy, because we got fires, we got droughts, we got all kinds of stuff going on right now, and we need a solution. With that being said, uh, let me see I guess with us. Mr. Bowman, are you with us?
1: Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Lamont.
2: Uh, thank you so much for taking time out to come and, uh, and chat with us. You know, you have a very powerful message, and like I was saying boy we we dealing with these things every day, and it's amazing how we take so many things for granted but uh thank you for joining us.
1: you bet my pleasure
2: so so so, Tom, let me see if I can call you Tom, you
1: of course a, um, yeah
2: uh a, a book out uh what a solving the mm-hmm. climate crisis is simple, so that is a great, great place to start. But first, ma'am, we got a list of questions here for you, man. I think I need to go ahead and run through them. You know, what I mean? there you go. I, I, I don't want to start off asking you how many dogs you got. You know. <laughs> so you know this this climate issue, and I know we we see that what's going on with the world today. You know, and I always uh, talk to my friends about you know when I was uh, a tad bit younger how we knew. The season without having to, you know, rely on the calendar. We just just knew. Yeah. Us. We could tell by by the weather. Um. So let me see. The first one we got for you is why is uh, climate change referred to as a wicked problem, and why is climate change one of them?
1: Yeah, that is that is a great question. A, a wicked problem is a term that's been given to. Any kind of problem that is so complicated, we can't figure out how to solve it. Uh, And the idea of a wicked problem is that it's so complex that you can't see the whole thing. You can't get all the information you want to have to make a decision. And even if you try to solve the part you can see, you're probably going to create other problems that you can't see. And so it's it's sort of a defeatist mentality that says, the best we can do with a wicked problem is we can do our best to manage it but we can't really solve it and we have to understand that as much as we try we're still going to take some lumps along the way and a lot of scientists refer to climate change in this exactly this way and uh, if you like i can get into it there's a there's a reason why they describe it that way and i think that that's a big mistake go for it all right so so the reason that it's so easy to think of climate change as something that we can't solve is because we've learned about it from people who study the complexities of global systems you know scientists are looking at at, at atmospheric chemistry and physics the way heat moves around our planet the way ocean currents interact with that the way the biosphere, all life on the planet interacts with that, the way the, the polar ice sheets interact with that, and it is a really complex, I mean the ideas are pretty simple, but all the interactions are really complicated. And so we've learned to think of it in complex terms, and unfortunately the way that that experts, so-called experts, have talked to us about how to solve the climate crisis has followed that same model. So, So it sounds like The climate solutions are this incredible, complicated, entangled Gordian knot of energy systems, food production systems, global delivery and transportation systems, international finance systems, international aid systems, international and local and national level governance systems, urban planning and architecture systems, utility systems, all of this stuff is when you think of it as systems are interacting with each other so let's say you and i decide we're going to try to solve carbon emissions coming from food production from agriculture and we start pulling on that thread in this knot pretty soon we have to figure out how our our fertilizers and herbicides which are made from fossil fuels get generated and how we're going to transport our crops where we're going to get water from how we're going to fund our business, so we're dealing with national governance, we're dealing with international markets, and it all becomes so complex that it feels like we're too small to solve it. And it also creates this false impression that the solutions need to be managed by uh, some sort of cadre of technical elite people who can see the whole problem, mac- map out some kind of master plan, and then somehow govern this master plan across the entire world. We all know that nothing works that way, right? Um, and we no, also fin- know, yeah. Go ahead.
2: No, I was just going to ask you: Are these the same people? Hopefully, these won't be the same people that's been following the past model.
1: <laughs> well, well, I'm I'm really describing kind of a, a an idea that has propagated in a lot of our thinking and some of its we're aware of it. some of its kind of unconscious and the reason I wrote this book is that I do so have done so much work with scientists over the years that I've watched this way of thinking play out and the logical conclusion of every lecture every documentary every every book I've read is man we're in a we're in a world of trouble and we know it's a wicked problem, so we can't really solve it. But we need to try our best, and so we need to somehow muster the political will to do the hard work, even though we know we're going to get hit along the way with some, you know, some pretty terrible consequences. And that just strikes me as a as a bad place to start. And so, uh, I, and so, I wrote the book, remembering what a art teacher told me one time, and this is a. This is a true story. I was working on a painting when I was a young guy, and I couldn't solve it. I mean, everything I did seemed to just keep it in, you know, kind of ugly and and make it worse. And he came up behind me, and he said, I tell you what to do. Hang it on the wall upside down and go home, because when you come back tomorrow, you're going to see it differently than you've ever seen it before, and you're going to know exactly what's wrong with it and I did it and he was exactly right. And and that's a metaphor for the way to look at problems that seem intractable, right? If you think a problem can't be solved, it might just be that every solution we try has an assumption in common because we're so used to seeing the problem in the same way. And so hanging the picture upside down is a metaphor for let's, let's, let's go hunting for our assumptions as we try to solve this, and see if they're really true. Let's set them aside for a minute and see what happens, see what reveals itself. And when you do that with the climate crisis, as complex as it looks, you discover that it really just boils down to doing one thing, and that is to stop burning fossil fuels. Uh, We know we want to do it as quickly as we can because the consequences are so bad if we don't. And we know we don't want to fail because the consequences are so bad if we don't. And so there's, a, there's sort of a new mantra in this little book I wrote, uh, and the mantra is stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely, positively do not fail. Now, that's, that might not be easy to think about on a global scale, but it's very easy to start thinking about at the scale of our own community, of our own businesses where we work, of our own households where we live, and all of a sudden this becomes something we can all start to work on. And it means we're no longer dependent on this idea that somebody is going to figure out a master plan and somehow figure out a way to to marshal all the people of the world to do the same thing. It doesn't have to work that way. Nothing works that way. We can actually do this locally everywhere. We can all be empowered and engaged, and we can make progress faster than we ever thought possible.
2: So what do you think the issue is that getting uh, uh, humanity to all get on the same page because it seemed like for some reason people are kind of stuck?
1: Very much stuck. And, and I think uh, I want to I ask another question. What if we don't have to be on the same page? What if that's another uh, distraction that's keeping us from, from getting off the sidelines ourselves and becoming active? I know a lot of social scientists who will say uh, that the research shows that the most useful thing we can do to combat the climate crisis is try to get the people who are most concerned about it activated. These are the people who are most amenable to doing something right now. And the more, more we engage with people who want to do something, instead of pouring all our effort into trying to convince the deniers to come along with us, the more we'll start actually changing things in the world for the better, and as people start to see the world changing for the better, it starts to create this sense of social momentum of, of mutual expectations, and we can all start generating more momentum towards positive change. It doesn't have to be smooth, it doesn't have to be consistent everywhere it. But the more we generate, it's like a snowball rolling down the hill is what we're trying to start. And so more people who are more deeply on the sidelines than, say, I am, will start to join in the process, and that will influence the people in their networks, who they know, and that will, again, spread. Um, And we can hopefully change our culture and generate the kind of political momentum that will cause policymakers to join us in this work.
2: Yeah, I was just going to ask you that, too. How much do you think that? Uh, how much influence do you think the policymakers would have with this? Because seem like a lot of them are stuck also.
1: Oh, they are. You know, I talked to a congressman who represented me at one time. We were at a town hall that he was hosting, and somebody in the audience spoke up about an issue that that mattered to a lot of people, and said, "Why isn't Congress going to do this? Because we know we all want it." And he said, "Look." He just sort of, he just sort of told the truth for a moment. He he said, you know, you have to understand. <laughs> yeah. He uh, mo- said for a moment. Uh, for a moment. For a moment. Well, but this is the thing. Yes, I know exactly. But this is the thing that we all we all suspect. We've all been told. And here he was saying it out loud. He said that every member of Congress is there to represent the people who paid to put them there. He didn't say they're there to represent you and me. He said they're there to nice. represent the people who wrote the big checks. And so anything we want to push through the Congress, we have to figure out how to push it through when everybody there is representing the money that put them there. Now, where's the big money? It's in big corporate, big corporations. It's in entrepreneurs who-, who have enjoyed a fairly laissez-faire kind of regulatory environment and made money. And it's the people who are invested in industries like fossil fuels that don't want to give up the advantages that they have, right? And so that's the political landscape we have to work in. And I I, I am as hopeful as anybody else that Congress will really pass the kind of infrastructure bills and climate bills that the Biden administration is talking about. But whether they're successful or not, we can't wait for, for some other administration and congress to replace them we need to be moving now and it and it leads me to wonder is is the federal government going to be the last one to the party right are our state and state governments and local governments and businesses and ordinary people going to be pushing so much change that that we can generate a momentum that causes the federal government to to join us and of course it's not that sim- it's not just binary it's not that they'll do nothing until we do a lot they have done things the clean power plan the regulations on pollution from coal-fired power plants the the risk, you know the protecting of arctic wildlands for from oil exploration there's a lot going on that's that's in government and outside of government it's just that we need so much more of it
2: I guess what I'm saying uh, the temptations had this song out once upon a time called ball of confusion and that's what I'm seeing right now in the world is this big ball of confusion and nobody yeah. really knows what to believe and who to believe and when to believe so you know it's hard to facilitate any kind of change without you know, uh, somebody moving in the same direction at the same time. And that's what I see that's not happening right now. So what do you see, Tom, that can help remedy that problem to even affect a climate change? Because, you know, with everything that's going on now, the pandemic, uh, everything mm-hmm. in the whole political world is so confusing. You know, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to focus on this, but even though we see it every day with the drought, yeah. you know, the, with the fires, Um, you know, that's affecting the whole food chain. You know, we see it. We're living with it daily, but everybody's so inundated with all this other madness that's going on and and really got all the confusion. So. What's going to stop people or that slap of side of the head to make everybody just stop right now <laughs> to listen, you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. so they can at least get the memo? That's where I'm at, you know, because I'm seeing all the problems, and everybody else see the problems, but they're so busy on this survival mode and confused, so what? So yes. I don't know. Yeah, that
1: that is a really really good question and it's not as <laughs> it's not it's not simple. Um there is a real this this is just the fact, There is a psychological um uh I want to say an, a trend, but it's not just that. We humans are programmed to prioritize the challenges that are immediate over the challenges that seem like we can deal with them later, right? Okay. And and so long-term challenge. this is part of the reason that scientists like to call climate change a wicked problem. It, it evolves slowly over time, and so there's always something that feels more urgent, right? The pandemic is more urgent, the, the state of the economy, the state of whether I have a job or not, how am I going to put food on the table, all those kinds of things, and I'm going to be able to keep my family healthy. These, these questions feel far more urgent and salient than and tangible than whether the climate is changing. The uh, one of the ways I think we we can get the slap on the side of the head that you're talking about to be effective is that in these moments when we see floods in Europe and horrific fires in the West, um, uh, heat stress in the southern part of the United States, and you know millions of refugees, climate refugees, migrating north to our southern border from places that are becoming unlivable, is, is, to, is to shift a narrative. You know, we, we always hear in the news about these problems. We never hear about solutions to these problems or progress on these problems. Exactly. And I'd, I would just like to, to tell your listeners that there is, a, there is a counter-narrative that's not getting much attention that says that Europe is banning the sale of internal combustion engine cars and trucks by 2030. That Ford, the biggest, you know, has announced an all-electric F-150, which is the biggest-selling vehicle in the United States by a mile. The state of California is has made enormous progress across the entire economy on on reducing carbon emissions because of its its forward-looking climate laws. The state of Iowa gets 40% or so of its electricity from wind power. There's a community that was wiped out by a tornado in Kansas called Greensburg that rebuilt as a green city. They get 100% of their electricity from wind power. So there is progress happening everywhere. It's just that we don't tend to pool it all together and say, is this a sign? Are these things together together? collectively a sign of our, of our capacity to move in the right direction. I think they are. It's just that the news media has never told the story in that way. And so most people, most of us, hear a little anecdote about success here or, or a little thing about something there, and we think it's just a fragmentary thing, and we're waiting for somebody to tell us there's a master plan. But I'm here to tell you that that if you just start letting those Listen to those stories with a different filter that says, hey, I heard about something else yesterday, and I hear about this today, and I heard about something else last week. There seems to be a lot going on, right? And it's that beehive of activity that, in our society, that is, I think, our biggest hope for changing the world more quickly than we expect we can. That's my optimistic voice. <laughs>
2: well, listen. We know a lot of people are walking around here with their eyes wide open. They wide open, but they're still shut. So we're gonna help those out. But uh, Tom, in your book, you described uh, having a moment of climate epiphany. What happened? Mm. And how did that change? It?
1: Boy, yeah. This is something I don't really wish on anybody, but it sure happened to me. I. I Used to own an exhibit design company, so I had about a dozen employees, and and we designed exhibits for museums and public aquariums and trade shows for corporate clients. And in the course of doing that, I was hired by the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. to create a new museum for them—a small new museum. Uh, and anybody who would say no to the opportunity to design a museum in the nation's capital would, in my profession, would be nuts, you know. So of course I jumped at the chance and the National Academies is a non chartered by Abraham Lincoln to advise the government on matters of science and medicine and engineering so all those NRC reports, National Security uh, or National um, uh, NRC, National Research Council reports, that's a arm of the National Academies right so it's the it's the elite scientists come together uh, and they're inducted based on the quality of their work. So that was my client. And the first exhibit we did was about climate science back in 2003. And so it was like going to graduate school as an independent study with climate scientists because I had to learn what I had to learn the story in order to translate it into exhibits that speak to the rest of us who aren't scientists, right? And I remember being really worried by what I saw back then. And the attitude among the scientists in 2003 was, you know, yeah, this is potentially really bad. Thank goodness we have time to sort this out because people are, are not unwise enough <laughs> that we're going to do something really, really dangerous. So I kind of went back to work like anybody else would on other projects. And in three years later, I was hired by the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in Southern California, which is a, a, another highly uh, highly regarded scientific research institution. And they have a public aquarium. So they wanted to do an exhibit that would open in 2007 about climate science. And the attitude among the scientists in just three years had just flipped 180 degrees. Um, they were, you know, the, the emissions in China and and Asia in general had just skyrocketed beyond anybody's expectations. The Arctic was starting to melt the ice much faster than anybody had expected. And so I was sitting, picture this, I'm sitting in this conference room at the aquarium that's got floor-to-ceiling windows. It's on the second floor on a bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean in this beautiful cove in southern, sunny Southern California, right? It's an idyllic setting. And so we're sitting there talking about what, what we're going to put in the exhibit, the science officer and I. And, and I just casually mentioned to her, you know, the people at the National Academies had said, keep an eye on the ocean. The ocean covers, you know, almost 80% of our planet, um, can absorb so much heat before the water actually starts to warm that when you start to see rises in ocean temperature, it means that we're going to be committed to a changing climate for 500 or 1,000 years. And she said, oh, well, we're part of this project. It's called Argo. And we have robotic floats in every ocean in the world. And we've already measured warming in every ocean in the world to a depth of 1,000 meters. That's 3,000 feet deep covering more than 3 quarters of our planet, right? And I that's the moment of epiphany. They you know, the dictionary says an epiphany is a sudden intuitive insight into some aspect of reality. Well, the thing about a real epiphany is that it changes your life because it hits you like a ton of bricks all at once. And in that moment, everything I knew about the potential risks and horrors of a of a destabilized climate came home to me all at once and i realized that we're way farther into this than i had imagined and i mean literally the the, my, the hair on the back of my neck stood up it was i actually looked over my shoulder it's like is there a predator behind me you know it had that <laughs> kind of emotional feel to it right and wow. and i was kind of I mean, I was trying to catch my breath. My sense of, hey, I'm a cool business owner with my client. Everything's cool, just was just stripped away. And she said in that moment, by the way, my boss, the director of the aquarium, would like to meet you now for the first time. So I walked into her office, and I sat down. She's a scientist. And she she chatted for a minute, and then she looked at me. Cause I was literally shaking. And she said, is there anything you want to ask me? And I said, yeah. How do you cope with knowing what you know? And she went, "Oh, we can have a real conversation about this now." You know. <laughs> um, and I drove home that de- that night thinking, "Can I can I sh- stuff this genie back in this bottle and go back to the life I used to lead?" And I mean, just two hours ago, I was leading. And the answer, of course, it, to that question is not a chance. And so, it it fundamentally caused me to refocus my career. I started working with scientists and social scientists a lot more. I eventually sold my I decarbonized my exhibit design company. We got recognition for that. I sold it to um to my employees and and because they're just you need to be doing work on climate change beyond exhibits. I felt and so um and so I opened a consultancy just to be able to be in the conversations that could lead to what I thought would be productive work and and i say i don't wish this on anybody because that moment of it i mean i i rode in a roll an emotional roller coaster for a couple of years after that you know and one scientist said to me i i feel optimistic on you know monday wednesday friday i feel pessimistic tuesday thursday saturday and sunday is up for grabs <laughs> and i can tell you it's i i don't go through that anymore but whoa what a ride so um my hope is that we can, in fact, be joyous and enthusiastic about creating the world we want to live in, rather than live a life of dread trying to avoid catastrophes that we don't want to see.
2: Wow, and that's the—that's the scary part: is being on that balance, that balance beam right there to balance it. And I was thinking too; while I was listening to you, Tom. I'm—I'm a, I'm a fisherman, and. Oh. Um, I'm looking at how the ocean has changed, or should I say, even the quality of fish in the last five years, you know, I noticed how it it dropped off, you know, and, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure out. Well matter of fact, let me ask you, since this is more or less your feel, um, do you feel like the climate uh changes has an effect
1: on the, the ocean life? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, one of the one of the sort of poster children of that is penguins in South America that live off of krill, tiny shrimp, and the changes in ocean temperature are, are moving the krill elsewhere from where the penguins are. And so, I mean, they, there was a, a time in South America where there were you know hundreds, thousands of penguins on the beach starving because their food supply was gone. There's this kind of disruption is happening everywhere in the climates because of of the changing climate. As animals that can move and plants that can migrate easily go as far as they can, but that disrupts all the ecosystems for everybody else. So yes, that's happening in the ocean. The oceans are also being overfished. Um, The amount of plastic pollution and agricultural runoff that's running into the oceans is just staggering. And that has an impact on on local populations of fish too. So it's a you know it's a it's a multi bunch of bunch of hits at once. I suspect that you're seeing. Hmm. So what do you think we can do about this? Yeah, that's the that's been the sixty-four dollar question. And I will tell you <laughs> that. The, um, the advice from social scientists has been really interesting for a long time. They have said the most important thing each of us can do about climate change is to talk about it more with our families, friends, coworkers, employers, politicians, everybody. The amount, the lack of climate talk is one of the reasons that policymakers don't and the media don't feel like this needs to be our top priority issue. Um, and this is a really, you know, this is taking a human psychology approach to the problem, right? That, that we can list all the actions we should, we can take. And I can, I can give your listeners some pointers if you'd like, but the most important thing we can do is break the ice because when we do, we discover that we're not alone in our worry. Everybody is worried. The, the research on public opinion shows that vast majorities Of people of all political stripes are concerned about the changing climate and want something done but if we're all quiet about it if we don't talk about it and the research shows that not very many of us are talking about it very much um, if we don't break that ice and make it normal to voice our concerns and our enthusiasm for the for the world we can create without smog and other kinds of pollution uh, and with the, out the kind of strife that comes with climate change, we're kind of keeping a lid on it, on our capacity to act and our willpower to act. So, uh, so from a from a very fundamental, how do, how do societies change point of view, talking about climate and talking about it as an opportunity to create a better world are the most important things we can do. And then each of us can do the things to decarbonize our business and our household and, uh, and to make us more resilient to, to you know, more, more extreme weather, depending on where we live. And we can get into those things if you like, but I think that, that talking fundamentally is the big deal. Okay. And that's not what anybody's going to tell you, right? Because everybody's going to tell you we need a climate, a carbon tax or we need an infrastructure bill or we need to invest in this or that. That's all really good stuff to do. We should do it. And talking about it more is one of the ways we start you know, sort of rallying ourselves to demand that of our elected leaders.
2: Yeah, I guess that's a good start. But then there's people out there that uh, are the mindset that, you know, well, we've been talking about it, so now what? And then we get into what you spoke about a little while ago, you know, the electric cars and a lot of stuff going electric. matter of fact, I built a house that's all electric, and at first I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing, but I'm kind of okay with it now, seeing how things are going. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so what do you think? You know, in the next five, ten years, you're going to see uh, more electric homes. Well, we see the electric cars coming now, but what other changes Mm -hmm. do you
1: see? Yeah, all electric homes is a big deal. Um, Energy efficiency in everything that uses energy is a huge deal. It's the cheapest form of new energy in the world. It's the energy we don't we stop using because we're more efficient, right? And, and for anybody buying anything that uses, uses energy, a refrigerator, a computer, a television, any of it, if you look for the Energy Star symbol when you're shopping, um, that's a good place to start because Energy Star is a program that, that identifies the top percentage of energy efficiency in any category. And as more and more products meet that standard, they raise the standard and so so there are very there are fewer energy star rated products and as more and more products meet that standard, they raise the standard again and that's a way of encouraging improvements over time right so your your ten year old refrigerator energy star refrigerator is far more energy intensive than a new energy star refrigerator and so uh, utility companies want you to change them want you to replace them and obviously. Everybody's financial circumstances are different. Um so, so if you can build an all electric home or convert your home to all electric energy star systems, you're way ahead. If you can't afford to, the, the 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 same rules apply. You want to use more more natural light, more natural air, fans for air conditioning instead of air conditioning if you can do it. Um uh, LED lighting, you know, the simple kinds of things. If you live in a hot place, try to have more shade right around your home because it will it'll keep the air cooler that's coming into your home. If you live in a cold place, you want good insulation to keep it warm. These are real basic ideas, right? And, and right. finding ways to just implement those ideas in all the things we do is a good way for each of us to to reduce our energy demand and therefore reduce our carbon footprint while we press for the market to change and for politicians to wake up and and pass legislation that will really help us make bigger progress.
2: Well, I guess I should say I'm happy to be alive to see some of these changes unfold. But let me say right here, Tom, for our listeners who just joined us, if you'd like to join the conversation you could dial 646-929-2870 and press number 1 on your phone, and we would be glad to let you join the conversation. If you'd like to ask the guest a question or two about moving forward and how you could help this climate thing. Um, Tom, in your book, What If Solving the Climate Crisis, is simple. You you wrote a chapter in there, and I'm, I'm very interested in hearing you um, mm. speak on this about how, how, what is it, you wrote an entire chapter about climate justice and confronting injustice as a white man. Why did you mm-hmm. write about system racism in a book about solving the climate crisis?
1: <laughs> uh, thank you for asking that question, because most interviewers don't ask that question. Um, I ain't you know, scared. For, I'm glad you're I'm not. not <laughs> I'm not scared. Because I want to look. inquiry. Inquiring minds wants to know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I live in uh, Long Beach, California, which is, part, has the busiest seaport in the United States, the ports of Long, Long Beach and Los Angeles. There's a freeway that comes out of that port that has something like 7,000 semis on it every single day hauling containers away from the port. And, and then equivalent number of trucks are coming back every day into the port to deliver empty shipping containers to send back to China to load up with more stuff to bring to big box stores and come bring it back here. 7,000 trucks a day produce all kinds of diesel pollution. Guess who lives close to the freeway? It's not wealthy white people. It's people of color and people with low incomes, and that's true everywhere. Right. And it means that, uh, that those who have darker skin and those who, who have lower incomes are suffering higher rates of asthma, childhood disease, respiratory disease, more loss of work because you're out sick, more days at the emergency room, more loss of income, and altogether poorer health. Than, than people who look like I do, because I'm a white guy. So forever, forever, I have been hearing in the scientific press, in papers, that climate impacts people disproportionately, and that the people who su- will suffer from climate change the most are people of color and people with low incomes here in the United States and all around the world, Right. I began working on a project last year, a collaborative project, to try to to build a strategy, an integrated strategy for the, hopefully, what we hoped would be a Biden administration, to start developing a plan to engage, get the public empowered and involved in this. And it was a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-profession set of dialogues that made absolutely I mean it's like another kind of epiphany right the the idea that there's disproportional impacts is well understood but until you really confront it until you're really in dialogue people with people who live with it it's not it's not as powerful and I grew up in horrendous smog in Southern California I know what that's like and I lived in a mixed-race low-income part of Los Angeles for a few years It was hot in the summer and intensely smoggy, and nobody had any money for air conditioning. Uh, And it was a really difficult place to be. And I realized that most of the people who lived there didn't have opportunities to earn more money and get out of there if they wanted to. This is just ridiculous. This is offensive. And, I mean, it's offensive right now, not... 20 50 years from now as the climate changes it's just not right right now. And so I wrote the chapter uh to kind of explore a little bit about how we get acculturated into systems that we all know are are racist and wrong and unfair and we find ourselves in those systems. How do we get how did I get here as a white person? You know, a lot of white people don't want to confront this because it's uncomfortable. They don't, you know, they say their hearts are in the right place. We all believe our, most of us believe our hearts are in the right place, or a lot of us do anyway. And yet, here we are in a system that's still giving me an advantage that somebody else doesn't have. What's up with that? And so I heard, um, I heard calls during the Black Lives Matter protests last summer after the murder of george floyd that white people need to start having their own conversation about race and so i wrote this chapter thinking you know that's really true and the only way to start it is to to be as awkward as i am and just start it and so uh... the chapter looks at uh, it kind of reflects on my own experience of, of going into business trying to make a living finding that that You know, my mentors in school and my mentors in business and my clients in business all have expectations that I'm trying to meet in order to advance. And all of those structures are fundamentally unjust, you know. They favor certain people over other people for no legitimate reason. Right? The the people of color and the low income people who participated in these climate action dialogues were just as as knowledgeable and wise and and had as much experience as the people who had been educated at Ivy League schools and had the best degrees and credentials and were white. It didn't matter. Everybody You know what
2: you know what I came up with. Go ahead, please jump in. Yeah. He who created the game also created the rules
1: yes so true
2: and and unfortunately we're dealing with the same today with just about everything Uh, i just want to say right here too i definitely applaud you for that chapter in the book and recognizing that and um people never really think about it in the terms that you just mentioned, that you know, lower-income families are destined to live in certain areas because of the economic situation. You know, people That's talk right. about it, but they really, 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 really don't take a hard look at, at what that really means because, guess what, they don't live in that part of Long Beach or that part of uh, Torrance where, you know, the oil refinery, I mean, the gas and oil refineries are always catching on fire and the fallout mm-hmm. and that. You know, people never really think about that because they're so quick and easy to say. Well, I, I don't live there, and it, it really doesn't. You know, I, I feel sorry for them, but
1: what does that actually mean at the end of the day to the individual that's right. dealing with that on a daily basis? That's that's exactly right, and and I, you know, my own life experience is kind of a, a microcosm of the problem because uh... when i lived in central south central los angeles i didn't have any money either you know i would i would spend the weekend junkyard parts for my car to keep it running so i could try to get to work during the week you know and I do i do i yeah do i pay the rent or do i fix my car this month do i buy this food or do i buy the new pair of shoes i need i, I know what that's like and i know the stress that comes with it and i remember uh, seeing an interview with a woman who, who was very low income. And she was talking about the fact that, that a lot of people beat up on poor people for spending their money on things like cigarettes. And she said, man, smoking is the, is the thing that helps me get through two jobs a day when I'm exhausted and stressed. And I know the reality of that. I know the reality she's talking about, because I've I've lived in the midst of it and I've actually experienced it myself and yet I was able to work my way out of there and and I have never felt comfortable with the fact that I was able to work my way out of there and I know damn well that a lot of people there can't not because they don't want to not because they don't have drive not because they don't work hard but because they're just in dis- they 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 can't get the education that would help, or their skin color and accent and uh, ethnic background or national, you know, they're their immigrants, whatever it is, um, puts barriers up to them that I didn't have to contend with. And that's just horrible. <laughs> that's just wrong.
2: Yes. Trust me. I, de- I de- yes. definitely understand because I can relate. As a black man, I could never relate to everything that you're saying because I come from a little town in Texas was was totally, totally racist. So, uh, you know, I lived with some of that stuff in my life. And when I came to California, you mentioned uh, South Central, but I went to a Catholic school on 41st in Central. I think I was the only Uh-oh. black guy there. I was the only black guy in the whole school, so I didn't wow. know about that. And uh one thing I can say about our former president he's shown he's shown a light on a lot of these uh racial issues that people knew existed, but they try to play like they didn't you yeah know what I mean? try to play like they're not there, but he pulled a cover off a lot of that stuff, so I'm glad that uh a lot of these things are being addressed today because they're good. And bad people of all races, all cultures, all nationalities, all over the world. And and if for anybody that's ever traveled anywhere, I'm sure that you've recognized good and bad people all over the world. It doesn't of matter course. where you come from.
1: And you also you discover, know. yeah, you also discover that we live in the we live in a country that is wealthier than than any in the history of the world, and that that's not the case in most of the places you travel to, right? In much of the world that you can travel to and and the i mean this is another side of the both practical and moral climate challenge is that everybody who lives in countries that have been impoverished want to want to have a comfortable lifestyle like we enjoy here and we are you know we are the majority of the world's emissions those of us who live in the industrialized world the carbon emissions and people in low-income countries are disproportionately living with the the consequences. I we we need to get our act together here fast and uh, you know, not just for to save ourselves but also because come on folks, <laughs> this isn't this world wasn't put here just for me to have a happy life and then leave nothing behind. I mean that makes no sense to me. Well,
2: this ball confusion. Yeah. Well, let's talk let's talk a little bit about your action for climate empowerment.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What is that project yeah. about?
1: So so, you know, part of the Paris climate agreement that Trump pulled us out of and Biden put us back into, um, is an has an article in it, Article twelve, that that reaffirms that uh from the underlying treaty that every nation of the world needs to empower its citizens to, to its residents to participate in finding and implementing solutions to the climate crisis you know if you if you accept biden's language that that climate is the existential threat of our time the idea that we can continue to live uh, the way we live without changing anything in the face of an existential threat. just doesn't make any sense, right? It's an existential threat. We need all of the expertise, all of the creativity, all of the initiative of an informed and empowered public to create and implement solutions. And they'll be different. In, in Texas, solutions will be different than in Southern California or than in Nebraska or in New England or in the Caribbean. There'll they'll be solutions that fit, that work where each of us, where our communities are. So, the Paris process urges every country to create a national strategy to do this, to, to, to create policies for education and workforce development and, and in professional training, employee training, um, for, for public access to information, public participation in policymaking and, and organizational decision-making and all the rest of it, and collaboration, cooperation, with a With a justice and, and, and gender equity and intergenerational you know lens that says our kids and grandkids have the same rights to a healthy world that we were born with to create a national strategy to empower all of this across their societies, and as it happens, um, some nations have done it, but none of the major emitting countries of europe, Japan, the United States, China, India have done it. And so a group of overall many years, a group of, of people who are concerned about this from mostly from education work, but but from advocacy work, from communication work like I do, to uh, have been talking about how do we create a national strategy for a country as diverse as the United States is. And recognizing that an election was coming up in 2020, um, early in that year, a group of people got together and said, "Let's figure out if we can create a, the framework for a national strategy for the United States." We don't have the standing; we're not the White House. We can't officially do a national strategy for the United States, but we can do a pilot project that is a blueprint and that that maps out the big themes for if we, for a national strategy for public engagement. If we do it by recruiting a diverse group of professionals uh, from different geographies, different ethnic backgrounds, different professional backgrounds. And we bring them together in dialogues and and do the kind of exercises together, forecasting exercises together and strategic planning that will give us a framework that we can give to the new administration and say, here's the blueprint for creating a national strategy. This should influence every policy in the federal government, and you should encourage it across subnational governments, meaning states, counties, municipalities, tribal governments, and organizations. And so we hosted uh, a group of online dialogues. We were doing this during the pandemic, so we met over Zoom, um, and it was – these dialogues were so incredibly inspiring and transformational because you realize the depth of commit capacity that exists in this country in but it's distributed everywhere and so I was brought in I was invited into this process as a participant and also to be one of the writers of the of the framework uh, so my partner writing partner Deb Morrison and I wrote this uh, strategic planning framework for the United States and it went through three rounds of reviews first of all the coordinating team reviewed it and we edited it and then we brought in a group of 20 very diverse strategic reviewers who come for, have different expertise and backgrounds they reviewed the document and and our mission was to to give voice to the people who part who created the insights the knowledge that was pooled here so we did another round of review, and then it went out to the community itself, the networks of people who had participated, and their broader networks. And we got literally a couple thousand comments or so. We responded to every single one, did a, a, a final edit, and we released this on November 30th of last year. Um, and it has it has gotten some you know some exposure within the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, it's gotten some exposure with some members of Congress, with some folks in the news media, and we are continuing. Those who were engaged in this process felt so energized in, uh, by it and by its potential that we are working hard on different avenues to um, to push the federal government in this direction to be. and You know, our view is that we should be, we should lead the world in creating a national strategy that works for the United States, brings together educators, communicators, local activists, large-scale activist organizations, the business community to, to create essentially a national mobilization to solve the climate crisis. Um, we argue that the all-of-government strategy that the Biden-Harris administration is pursuing really needs to be met by an all-of-society mobilization to support it, to engage in it, to do it. Uh, and so that's that's the, that's the nature of this work, I think.
2: Yeah, that kind of led into my next question. Uh, do you feel like the Biden administration is on the right track? That's part one of the question. The second part of that same question is do you feel like the powers that be are going to let them uh, play out?
1: Yeah, two really good questions. Um, I think the Biden administration has been working really hard to get its feet under it in this space. I think the appointment of Gina McCarthy to be the domestic climate czar and John Kerry to be the international uh, climate leader for the United States envoy, it's a big, big first step. And president signed a an executive order that calls for an all of government um, uh, strategy, and tasks the various federal agencies with working on pieces of this. They also organized the what's called the Wejack, the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, which has an independent group that has already issued a final report to the federal government and. And they have also appointed, um, this process I described last year is known by the acronym ACE, Action for Climate Empowerment, so ACE. And they've uh, appointed a dual ACE national focal point, which is one of the steps that the Paris Agreement calls for. And the ACE focal points, we are hoping, will, will get the authorities to start really working on this strategic work to empower the public, not just empower the federal government to do its work. So in a way, all eyes are on the infrastructure bill and whether it can get through Congress in a way that is really, really productive. Um, And in another way, behind the scenes, a bunch of us are working as hard as we can to try to gain traction for a whole-of-society mobilization model that can work through the federal agencies, the extension agents, the education leads, the, the rule makers, the, those who incentivize and work with local communities so that there is sort of a, a, a top-down meeting, a bottom-up, right? That's, that's the holy grail here. And will they succeed? Will we succeed? We don't know. Um, unless you're one of the people who is really in the room – in those discussions in in the White House and in the federal agencies, it's it's hard to read the tea leaves. Um, but there are some there are some positive signs, and and there's a real sense that people who work on the climate crisis are are seeing enough of a difference in the Biden administration that people have been energized by it, with some skepticism. I mean, there's a you know. The, People are going to hold the Biden administration's feet to the fire. It could very easily slide into sort of status quo with good intentions, but I don't think um, I don't think the people who work on climate are going to stand for that too long.
2: Tom, listen. We're just about out of time here, man. But we're going to leave that one, a question mark, open for you. So I want there you to come back, come back to the show, man, so we can finish that conversation. And we're going to start it out with that one right there, and we're going to be able to look at it again. But I think I'll look to forward this, man, to that. For, oh, definitely, definitely, man. I'm going to look forward to it as well, because we're both going to be walking around with our eyes wide open to see what they do.
1: That's right. That's right. Said, Listen, thank you so much for having me on, Lamont. This has been terrific.
2: Oh, man, we enjoyed you immensely. And I just want to tell our listeners again, if you joined the show late, it would be available uh, worldwide, so you have no excuse, uh... no reason why you can't hear it and can't get it from anybody. And I tell you the same thing weekly: ask your mama, ask your daddy, ask your neighbor across the street, ask the guy at the gas station, or the man that worked at the supermarket. Somebody will be able to tell you where you can hit a show, so you don't have no excuse. And um, <laughs> definitely, Mr. Tom Bowman, have a message, and each and every one of you guys can benefit. Take notes and uh, support. We do need to make changes. And I want to thank you so, so very much for joining us today. Uh, Tom, I thank you again. And the doors open. Come back anytime. We'd love, love to have you. And, thank
1: uh, you. It's been my honor to be here. Continue to be safe.
2: Everybody, All right. we'll see you guys next week. Same time, 2.30 PST. Be safe. And uh, take this one home with you. God is good, 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 good. Yeah. If it hadn't been for the Lord on my side. Walking through. And Snare. Out. I lost my breath, yeah, i am got to
0: dress, huh? I brought to strap Giving up with them, my own mama didn't know me. They were hacking through me, huh? Ha. He had to swallow me and so I saw the light from above.